Our text today comes from Mark chapter 8. If you turn there in your Bibles, Mark chapter 8. We're going to finish this beautiful chapter uh, in our gathering today. Mark chapter 8, verse 34 and through verse 38 in a teaching about following Jesus, following Jesus. Now, I have to really start today's teaching as you're turning there to Mark chapter 8 in your Bibles by reminding you of our place in the gospel of Mark. Uh, Mark had begun this book by revealing Jesus's identity. Uh, in the very first verse, Mark tells us in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, that Jesus is the Christ and that he is the Son of God. And in the first eight chapters of the book of Mark, Mark shows us the beauty of Jesus's life. No one in the book at this point had confessed Jesus as the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, the descendant of David who would vanquish Israel's enemies uh, or of their enemies and bring in an everlasting kingdom. Uh, no one, that is, until Peter. This is what we saw in our last study together in the Gospel of Mark. Peter confessed that Jesus is the Christ. It was a major revelation. Jesus started by asking his disciples who the crowds thought he was. And then he asked his disciples who they thought he was. And Peter spoke for the group and confessed that Jesus is the Christ. The Messiah, the descendant of David that they were all waiting for in Israel. And immediately Jesus then silenced his disciples, if you recall. Uh, though they were right that Jesus is the Christ, they had the wrong idea or image in their minds of who the Christ would be and what he would do. And if they went around telling the whole region that the Christ had come, the fervor in the region about Jesus would have reached a boiling point and everyone would have expected Jesus to drive out the Roman Empire and establish his messianic rule, establish the throne of David once again. But Jesus, in his first coming, didn't come for those reasons. He came first to suffer, die, and rise from the grave. He will, of course, come again to reign, but his first coming required his death. There is no kingdom, so to speak, without Christ's cross. So the disciples had to be quiet until they learned the whole message of the gospel. Then they could broadcast Jesus. Then they could declare Jesus with their every breath. But until then, they had to be quiet. So after Jesus started teaching his disciples about his coming death and resurrection, this next scene that we're going to look at today unfolded. Jesus will gather the crowds together and he'll gather with his disciples and he'll begin showing his disciples and the crowds what it looks like to follow him. Again, remember, it's very important for what Jesus is about to say that the disciples have only recently confided in Jesus that they believe that he is the branch of David who will usher in an age of righteousness that will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. And their internal excitement and apprehension at the thought of Jesus being the Christ, that figure, that descendant of David, the new king, their, their excitement must have been off the charts. 
You know, the Messiah has come, they must have been thinking to themselves. And he has, for whatever reason, chosen us to be his main guys. What will the rest of our lives look like? And it's clear in other texts in the New Testament that these men envisioned, at least at this time, that there would be thrones and supernatural power and great wealth attached to being Jesus' disciples in the kingdom age. They thought of glory. They thought of greatness. So Jesus needed to start the process of teaching them what life in his kingdom would actually look like. So with that as the backdrop, they thought he was the Christ, confessed he was the Christ, and wondered what life with the Christ would be like. Let's read our passage today, verse 34 to 38. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now this whole passage, it's an old yet unexhausted passage of scripture. It is central, of course, to the Christian life and experience. Its words, the words that Jesus spoke, they were designed to reprogram the disciples. 2,000 years ago. And these words can reorient us 2,000 years later. Sermon upon sermon could be spoken about these words. But let's take a moment now to study our text for what it shows us about following Christ. And here's the first thing. Number one, it shows us the attractiveness of following Christ. The attractiveness of of following Christ. I mean, Jesus called the crowd, it says in verse 34, with his disciples and said to them, if anyone would come after me. If you think about it, the whole paragraph, everything Jesus said, no one else could say these things. You know, the whole movement hints at Jesus's identity, at Jesus's deity. You know, if a teacher or even a prophet invited people to follow him like Jesus did on this day, we would call it blasphemy. His invitation is one of full-scale devotion, ridding one of self-centeredness and replacing it with Jesus-centeredness, Christ-centeredness. He wants us to lose our lives for him, verse 35. He wants us to preserve our souls by being his disciples. He wants us to find motivation in his return, in the glory of his father with the holy angels. No man can talk like this. Only God can command this level of allegiance. But the crowd and the disciples would have been interested in following Jesus. This is why he started the whole teaching by saying, 
if anyone would come after me. This points us to the attractiveness of following Christ, the attractiveness of Jesus's life. Anyone can say something like this, if anybody would follow me. But when Jesus says it, the crowds listen, the disciples listen, and 2,000 years later, we listen because Jesus's life was so beautiful. And of course, at this point in Mark, the crowds and the disciples, they really didn't understand who they were dealing with in Jesus, but they knew a little bit about the life of Jesus. And what they saw in Jesus absolutely amazed them. It mesmerized them. G. Campbell Morgan calls this the spell of Jesus. He was appealing. He is appealing. We look at him and we know he knows about life. He knows how to live. Even before the cross, the crowds could look at Jesus and see that Jesus knew the secret to life. And the secret to life is something that all of us are after. All of us are pursuing. I mean, we all know how to be biologically alive. You know, it takes no effort. We're living organisms. We're alive. But we know in our souls that we don't really know how to live, how to be alive. We, we sense so often that something is missing, that we are doing human wrong. We, we have luxuries, we have scientific advancements, we have great wealth, we have education, we have entertainment, we have literature, we have gadgets, we have great cities and societies, we have democracies, we've built great nations, we have innovation, but so often we don't have the sense that we are doing the human life correctly. Something is amiss. Like zombies, we pass through life following the priorities and allegiances that others declare for us. And so often we don't, do not feel that we are living out our great human destiny. And now here's Jesus coming onto the scene. He, it's very clear, knows all about what life is supposed to be. He doesn't follow his passions, but his life has great meaning. He doesn't have many possessions, but he's satisfied like none of us have ever been satisfied. He doesn't have power, but instead lowers himself and serves others, but he is highly exalted. Jesus, it seems, knows how to really live. He knows the secret of life. When we get to Mark chapter 10, uh, we're going to come face to face with a young, wealthy ruler. <clears throat> and he's going to come to Jesus and ask Jesus, about how he can obtain eternal life. Now, when he said that to Jesus, he didn't have the same theological understanding that we have today with our completed scripture. He wasn't asking Jesus, how does salvation come? How can I go to heaven? Is it justification by faith? How do I obtain salvation? No, what he wanted was what Jesus had. What he wanted was life. 
He looked at Jesus and saw that Jesus was living and he wanted that. How can I have everlasting, abundant life, Jesus? Now, it's fascinating that he came to Jesus asking for those things because he had so much of what we think leads to life today. He had youth, something that many in our society are chasing. People want to look young, feel young, or act young. So many people fear aging. In fact, often those who fear aging age the worst. But this man, he was a young man and he was successful in his prime of life. Yet he still knew something was missing. He also had power. Luke calls him in Luke chapter 18, a ruler. People looked to him for leadership of some kind in that society. He was still a young man, but his talent, his ability, his knowledge caused him to rise to, a, to the top of his community, to a place of authority. And not only that, but he had wealth. Mark says that he had great possessions. Luke says he was extremely rich. But though he had all of those things, he didn't have life. He didn't have what he saw in Jesus. When he looked at Jesus, he did not see a young man. Now, Jesus was in his early thirties during his public ministry, which in that day and age, wasn't necessarily a very young age, like we might consider it today. But the look of Jesus seems to have been much older than a man about 30 years of age. There was a time where Jesus told the religious leaders that Abraham rejoiced to see his day. And they responded by saying, you're not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham. They looked at a man who was 30 and told him, you're not yet 50. I think they were that far off because Jesus, due to the fatigue of a carpentry life in Nazareth and a ministry life in Galilee, looked much older than he actually was. When the man looked at Jesus, he did not see power. He saw a servant. He saw someone willing to move to the outskirts of town to avoid conflict with the religious leaders. And though he didn't know it, the rich young ruler saw the son of God who had lowered himself to such an extreme point that he became human so that he could know humanity and die for humanity. And when the rich young ruler looked at Jesus, he did not see wealth. Jesus was content to have no place to lay his head. He was satisfied with little. Sometimes we talk of this about Jesus as if we are sad, the son of man. Foxes have holes, birds have nests, and the son of man has no place to lay his head, Jesus said. And we say it in a sorrowful tone, but I wonder if Jesus said it with great joy in his heart. He was free of the need to have. But for all this, the man was attracted to Jesus. He knew, like we know today, that Jesus was truly alive. That Jesus knows how to live. And this is the first thing, the attractiveness of Christ, the attractiveness of following Christ. You cannot forget this because if you don't remember the beauty of Jesus's life, then the cost of discipleship that we're about to look at 
is going to seem way too steep to you. But Jesus is going to describe the beautiful life that he lived in the verses to come. So that's the first thing, the attractiveness of following Jesus. But the second thing that we should see is the cost of following Christ, the cost of following Christ. He said in verse 34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. All right, so we've seen now Jesus is attractive. He's the Christ, but they're learning what kind of Messiah he actually is because a wrong view would lead to a wrong view of discipleship. So Jesus told them the cost of following him. They'd have to deny themselves and take up their crosses. Now, this isn't Jesus's way of telling us that we must deny our personality, uh, that we must die as a martyr, or that we have to live an ascetic life that is detached from things. Now, he's not talking about self-denial even, you know, that leads to personal gain. Things like exercise or dieting or personal discipline. No, when Jesus said that a man should deny himself, it wasn't his way of saying that we should deny the self things that the self wants. No, it's his way of saying that we should say no to the self altogether. In other words, Jesus is saying that the self should be displaced and renounced entirely. Life used to be about the self. Now it must be about Christ. It's not that self is over there in the corner and we're saying, self, I know that you'd like ice cream, but I'm going to deny you ice cream right now. No, it's that we take the whole center of our existence and we say, no longer will it be about self. Now it will be about our allegiance, our obedience to Jesus Christ. Jesus says it in a negative and positive way. The negative, deny yourself. The positive, take up your cross. The negative, step off your throne. The positive, surrender the throne to Jesus. Whatever he assigns you, whatever cross he asks you to take up, take it up and follow him. Now, this, of course, is the life that Jesus lived. He came to earth with an assignment from his father. And his assignment was a literal cross. The cross, of course, was a method of torture that the Romans had perfected. And the Bible had prophesied that Jesus, the Messiah, would die and suffer on a cross in places like Psalm 22. So when Jesus said these things, he's not using it as a, as a simple you know, metaphor, he actually took up his cross in following after the father. It was a terrible Roman contraption meant to humiliate all who were subjugated by Rome. They would crucify rebels on the outskirts of town, on the main road, as a way to tell every passerby that Rome was in charge. Rome is the boss. And a person on their way to be crucified, they would carry their cross. They were submitted to Rome in the most extreme way you could be submitted to Rome. So when Jesus tells us as his people that if we want to follow him, we must take up our cross, 
Again, it's not his way of telling us to put up with a sickness or deal with a trial or uh, handle or tolerate a difficult person in our lives. No, it's not his way of saying that we should endure times of difficulty. He's instead telling us to give God total allegiance, to follow God no matter what. Now, if all this talk of self-denial and taking up your cross sounds like a tall order, you're right. Jesus knew that the task of spreading the gospel through the whole world would be difficult. He also knew the secret to real living. So he did not hold back at all. He told people exactly what it would take. You see, Jesus is interested in quality over quantity. He knows that his message of discipleship will not appeal to the general population. The crowds would not receive it. But it's the secret to real living. It's the secret to real joy. So Jesus makes it clear. Deny yourself and take up your cross. In Luke, Jesus spoke of a man who built a tower and a king who went to war. The man who built the tower first sat down and counted the cost of what it would take to build the tower. And the king who was going to war first sat down and calculated if his troops were strong enough to defeat the army. Jesus is no different from the tower builder and the king who was a general. He also counts the cost for what it will take to build what he wants to build in his kingdom and go to war to fight the fights he wants to fight in his kingdom. And what he needs to get the job done, to get the church built, to get the war won, are disciples, people who bear their cross in allegiance to him. But this is where the cost of discipleship is too much for too many. It sounds impossible. It sounds like a losing proposition. So rather than follow Jesus, here's what many people do. They make compromises and continue to settle for less than real living. And they turn Christianity into something cheap, something easy, something weak. And when they do, they dilute it to the point that it loses its potency. But potent Christianity is real living. So Jesus, he then gives us now promises about life following after him. So that's the third part of this teaching. What does it look like to follow Jesus? Well, we have to understand number three, the promises of following Christ. Look at it there in verse 34 and following, 35 and following. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. 
Now, in that little paragraph, there are four sentences that start with the word for. For whoever, for what, for what, and for whoever. It's language that helps us see a connection to the call of discipleship. If we deny ourselves and carry out the assignments that Christ has given to us, then this is what we can expect to happen, right? Here are the promises. Promise number one, you'll find your life. You'll find your life. This is a surprising element of Jesus's call. When you lose your life for Jesus, you actually save your life. You find your life when you lose it. This is a total paradox. You see, life, brothers and sisters, cannot be found by grasping for it, by fighting for the self, by trying to get yours. So though people often trade in spouses for a new version, though people often bite and devour to greedily amass more for themselves, and though people spend hours doting on themselves, life is never found that way. The second you try to find your life and put yourself on the throne, you lose your life. It slips through your fingers. But the believers in the book of Acts, they formed a new community and paved a new way of Jesus living. They communed with one another. They made relationships with others, other believers, a major priority of their lives. They gave and sacrificed for one another. They shared Jesus with their cities. They stayed committed to lives of righteousness. That's taking up your cross and following Jesus. They obeyed Jesus's call on their individual lives. And they found life just as Jesus promised. Promise number two is this. You'll keep your soul. You'll keep your soul. Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? You see, too often we forget that we're comprised of more than our bodies. Our bodies are very much who we are and what we do with them helps shape our inner person. But we are more than the outward person, more than our bodies. We have souls and there is no gain according to Jesus in gaining the whole world, yet losing your soul. To lose your soul is the equivalent of wasting your life. Looking back and realizing you spent the whole thing on the wrong things. Even gaining the whole world, Jesus said, is not worth the forfeiture of your soul. But people neglect and devalue their souls all the time, tossing them aside for the pursuit of passions, possessions, or power. And you can get those things, but your soul is gone. You're no longer you, but an amalgam of other people's priorities and desires. You are lost. Your soul is gone. But the person who obeys Jesus and makes life about pursuing his will for their lives finds the flourishing of their soul. Their soul flies. Their inner person rejoices. And the last promise that Jesus gave 
is that you'll enter glory. You'll enter glory. He said, whoever's ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Finally, we come to the last promise. Jesus states it in the negative. He says, there are those who cannot abide by the disciple life. Those who are ashamed of two things, Jesus and his words. And when, when Jesus returns in glory, he says, I'll be ashamed of those people. They will not be part of my future glory. But it's all too easy to be ashamed of Jesus. There are things about Jesus' life that are palatable to everyone. His love, his grace, his mercy. Everybody likes a good healing every now and then. But the fact that Jesus died on the cross for the sin of a broken world that was under the judgment of God, that is repulsive to most people. And Jesus spoke words that would be offensive to many, words of judgment and righteousness, which many in our generation and in his generation as well hate. But the disciple who has denied the self and taken up their cross, for that person, that person loves Jesus's life and words. We build our lives upon the life of Christ, what he did in his death, burial, and resurrection. And we build our lives upon the word of Christ as he spoke and as it was extended through his disciples. And one day we will discover just how worth it it was to make Jesus our priority in life. Oh, Jesus has the best life to live. Jesus' price for discipleship is high, but the promises attached to it make that life well worth living. God bless you, church. I'm praying for you. Have a wonderful week.